Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings. And we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to um, our first edition of Summer Mixtape. I'm here with Scott McKnight. Um, Scott, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Um, well, if you don't know much about Scott, you, you absolutely should, first of all, um, because he's been doing this a long time and so leading and helping and supporting church and training pastors and all of that kind of stuff. He's been a big influence on me, on Matt Gonzalez, our worship pastor. But here's Scott's bio if you don't know much about him. So Scott McKnight is a recognized authority on the New Testament, early Christianity, and the historical Jesus. Uh, McKnight, author or editor of some 85 books. That is, I'm not even sure I've read 85 books in my entire life. No, I probably have. That's a lot. Uh, he's a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Um, Dr. McKnight has given interviews on radios across the nation, has appeared on television, regularly speaks at local churches, conferences, colleges, and seminaries in the USA and abroad. Dr. McKnight obtained his PhD at the University of Nottingham and has been a professor for nearly four decades. And he was elected into the Hall of Honor at Cornerstone University in honor of his basketball accomplishments during his college career. I did not know that until I got to Oh, too bad to bring that up. That is incredible. <laughs> I am a huge <laughs> basketball fan, and I love that we, we share that. So he and his wife, Kristen, live in Libertyville, Illinois, and they enjoy traveling, long walks, gardening, and cooking. They have two adult children and two grandchildren. So Scott, that is your bio. But I'd love for you to just give us the, the quick version of your story. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah. Well, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, 100 miles uh, west of Chicago in a small rural community. And um, <clears throat> went to, off to college to study for the to study the Bible. After having a a profound summer uh, conversion type experience, I grew up in the church and considered myself a Christian. But I had a what we called in our Baptist fundamentalist church uh, a rededication. That's what we called it. So um, I didn't really even see it that way. It was more like an invasion of God into my life and uh, a surrendering to that invasion. And then I began to study the Bible in high school and uh, taught myself Greek in high school so I could read the Bible better. And then uh, in college, I majored in history and Bible. Uh, knew uh, I wanted to be either a missionary or a professor. I, I, I didn't really even know that much about the difference between the two. Sure. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I knew one was in a foreign country, obviously, but what I wanted to do was study the Bible and read and theologize. And I thought someday I'd write. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, I went to seminary and um, I, I actually applied to the seminary that you went to, brother, and uh, they rejected me. No, I think my I think my supervisor, my my professor wrote a bad recommendation because he didn't want me to go there. Oh, that's right. And uh, one of my buddies in seminary in college went and I always thought, how in the world did he get in? And I didn't. <laughs> but I had I had a great experience at Trinity. And then while I was there, um, pretty much became convinced that I should be a professor, not a missionary, not a pastor. And so I did a Ph.D. in England at the University of Nottingham. 
and uh, in New Testament. And then I was hired back at Trinity in uh, Chicagoland. Uh, after 12 years, I left there and taught at North Park University for 17 years. And now I've been teaching at Northern Seminary, uh, which I, I find the delight of my career. I loved teaching college students. Trinity was difficult for me. It, it wasn't a, a good fit. But I loved teaching college students. And I never thought I would enjoy seminary students as much as I could enjoy college students. But I've really enjoyed my seminary students. And it's just getting better and better. Our school is growing. It's so fun to be there at Northern. So, And, um, and we live. Uh, I, I'm an Anglican. We go to church at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, we love our church. Um, quite happy uh, to be there. And, you know, this is our life. So I read and write and go to church and speak and get on, on Tovecast is what I call them now. <laughs> I love it, man. Um, you know, I, I recently read um, Eugene Peterson's biography by Wynn Collier that I know you went through with your whole group um, that you lead. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like really from your story and Eugene's story, some similarities about how you guys are wired and put together and all of that, your prolific writing and all of that stuff. And I just, you're really, you're really, a, you've been a gift to me, your words and work. Well, thank you. And a gift to the church, Scott. So I, I appreciate you. So one of the 85, that's a huge, <laughs> I'm never going to get over it. One of the 85 books is your latest one, a church called Tove. Um, so we gave away a copy leading up to this. And then on the zoom discussion afterwards, we'll give away another one. If you don't get one of the two copies, you should purchase it because it is an excellent, excellent book, especially for our day to day. You co-wrote it with your daughter, right, Laura? Yes, that's right. Yes. Cool. What, a, what an awesome right. experience. Now I got to back up to what you said about Eugene Peterson. All right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm honored that you would mention me in connection with Eugene Peterson, but I was asked to blurb one of his books. Okay. And this is, this is the endorsement that I sent in. Being asked to endorse a book by Eugene Peterson is like an ordinary Catholic being asked to blurb the book of the Pope. <laughs> and, they, and they wrote me back and said, send us something else. <laughs> <laughs> what a great... I, it's the best blurb I ever wrote, and they didn't like it. Oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah, that, that should have made it in there. That's really good. Um, okay, so on Tove, um, your book, right, it's called A Church Called Tove. Tove is a Hebrew word, but for those of us who are not familiar with the Hebrew language or ancient Hebrew specifically, or the word tove, can you talk about why the American church so badly needs to refocus itself around tove right now? Yeah, the word tove means good or goodness. You know, so in Genesis chapter one, God, everything God created was tove and then and when he looked at all the things that he had made, he called it Tov Ma'od, uh, you know, totally Tov. <laughs> and, um, and Tov is a description of the design of God uh, for human beings and how they should live morally, how they should live in relationships. And it describes character that a person is Tov. I often use as my example, Mr. Rogers as a Tove person. And everybody agrees he was a Tove person. The reason our churches need Tove today the most is because we have stopped measuring or looking for character mm. and Tove. Yeah. Christ-likeness, uh, being a loving person. 
We've ceased doing that, and we now measure success in a church by numbers, by how many people get baptized, how many people are members, how much money people put in the plate, how much, uh, how many buildings we've built, you know, all these um, quantifiable things. And um, it's okay to grow. We want to grow. We want people to become Christians. But uh, we measure success, as it were, in the Christian world by Christlikeness. And that means tov. Tov is a, a one word of describing what Christlikeness looks like. And we need far more attention to the development of character uh, in homes, in moms and dads, in children, in leaders, in ordinary people, in ordinary ways being tov. And um, the, one of the things that really has surprised me, when, um, when I first started paying attention to this word in a serious way, of how often it occurs in the Old Testament. It is, I call it a master moral category. Wow. It is one of the words that can summarize the, the whole of what God wants for us. He wants us to be tov. And Jesus told us to be people who do tov works so that people will see your tov works and glorify God in heaven. Paul says one of the fruit of the spirit is tov. Uh, now he uses, we translate it goodness, um, and he describes the Roman Christians as people who are tov. Peter over and over talks about being people who do tov works. So tov is very important in the New Testament as well. And it's unfortunate that we've lost contact with this important uh, word and important moral category. So I just wish we could start all over. You know, I, I think of myself as a seminary professor, you know, do we do we focus enough on character development, formation into Tov? Uh, is this what we're trying to form, or are we just trying to get degrees? Yeah. And um, what are we doing in as pastors and leaders in churches? Are we just preaching sermons so people will learn, or so they'll become Tov? Are moms and dads uh, nurturing their children to become people marked by Tov? That's that's what I think we need. Oh, that's good, Scott. You know, when, when you said that about seminary, it reminded me of my experience. Um, we did not do a, a ton of, you know, kind of tove work as individuals. We did have something called spiritual formation that we were required to be in. Um, and I think it's, you know, it ends up being as good as your group or your leader ends up yeah, being. Yeah. Um, mine was, was six guys, uh, all first year seminary students. And um, almost every meeting, we would, one of the questions was, how are you involved in a local church and what, what are you doing there? And um, I was the only one of the six that was involved in a local church and I was on staff at one. So I can't, you know, be holier than thou, um, like serving or anything. But the, the reasoning for all the other five guys as to why they couldn't or didn't want to be involved in a local church was as first year seminary students, there's nothing that any pastor in this city can really teach me that I don't already know. Um, and there was this, this toxic posture wow. of pride, wow. you know, wow. and um, in the book, you talk about how the opposite of a Tove culture is a toxic culture. Um, and you see in work with tons of pastors, churches, leaders all over the country and really around the world. What are the areas of the American church right now that you see as most toxic or why simply are we not putting Tove into practice? Oh, 
Oh, what a question. Um, you know, we, I, I already mentioned that we don't measure character enough. We measure success. Someone that I've gotten to know a little bit is a man named Chuck DeGroat. Chuck wrote a book called When Narcissism Comes to Church. Mm. And Chuck made a statement to me on my podcast, and he said, every pastor is on the spectrum of narcissism. Wow. I went, oh, boy. And then he said, and professors too. <laughs> I went, okay, all right, now we're all on level ground here. You just humiliated. And he said, nobody gets up in front of a platform and tells people what God wants them to do if they're not on that spectrum. Mm. He said, people not on that spectrum would never get up on that platform and do those sorts of things. So here, here's what I would say. The more successful a church is in that sense of numbers, yeah. the more temptation there is to enhance toxicity and narcissism. Narcissistic people distort Christian ethics. Mm. And when they are in charge of churches, and let's face it, I saw a study one time that said 70% of pastors are narcissists. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't, I'm not sure I would say that, but, uh, and it wasn't a, a genuine study, so it's more yeah. of a guess. But uh, the more, the more success a narcissistic person has, the greater the distortion that's going to occur. Mm, that's good. And we have so much narcissistic, unempathetic, grandiose, driving, ambitious, celebrity-loving type pastors. And this is deforming church culture yeah. and church life and Christian living. And that's where I'm seeing it the most. I think that we have been invaded by toxic character formation and toxic leaders who are spreading it into churches. Um, I mean, we're, we're measuring these things, money, you know, how much money do we bring in? And look, I, I deal with, with pastors and churches and I, I occasionally hear a church saying we're looking for a new pastor, uh, but we got to have someone who's really good behind the pulpit because our church is pretty big. And our budget is pretty big. And then the next thing you realize, they're trying to find someone who can bring in enough butts to the seat to put a certain amount of bills in the plate and some baptisms and some buildings. Yeah. And, and, and this seems to be driving what's going on rather than, I mean, Eugene Peterson, was he died a frustrated man about this very thing because everything seems to be shaped by business models rather than uh, how can we help people become more like Jesus? Yeah, Whew, that's good, Scott. I like the, it's toe versus, I think it was five Bs there, butts, bills, baptisms, buildings, and business. So that's, that could be a, the 86th book right there, the five Bs. <laughs> yeah, you could write it. Uh, I'll put my, I'll put my name on it if it's good. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, yeah, wait on that. If it's good, yeah. it's a good qualifier there. Yeah. Um, so th this book, one thing that I, I mean, like I said, you co-wrote it with your daughter. Um, one thing that really struck me about it is it's it's deeply personal for both of y'all. Um, yeah. A lot of really personal stories. Um, and I want to talk about uh, abuse specifically, various types of abuse that happens in church. But you mentioned that frequently throughout the book. And when we have toxic cultures and we're not pursuing Tove, 
we have narcissistic leaders that abuse happens or abuse is enabled and or abuse is covered up. And so regarding abuse specifically, you, you saw it up close at, at Willow Creek. You talk about that in the book, one of the largest, most influential churches at the, in the world at the time. Um, a few years ago, the Houston Chronicle uncovered over 700 cases of abuse in the Southern Baptist churches, um, the world's largest Protestant denomination, and obviously Catholic Church continues to have significant issues with abuse. So all of that said, why have so many of our churches and religious institutions become hotbeds for abuse and abuse cover-up? Males who are narcissistic, who have power, mm -hmm. will abuse that power in any way they want. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways males abuse power is sexual abuse of women who are vulnerable to their power. Yeah. So I think this is this is where it's happening. I mean, this, you know, we I suppose there are some women who abuse teenage boys uh, in public schools. There are some of these stories. There are some of these stories in churches, but very few. It's almost entirely males abusing younger females and congregants. There is a bill going through the, the state of Maine right now that will make a pastor having inappropriate sexual relations with a congregant or someone who works for him into criminal behavior. Wow. This is going to change the name of the game. Yeah. And I think, I think, I actually think this, this could be helpful for the church yeah. uh, to have the government get involved and say, okay, that, that's it. We're going to make this a crime. Um, so I, I think it's just, it's just um, desire on the part of males who have the opportunity through their power and their narcissistic uh, impulses to take advantage of women when they have their opportunity. And it's just spread. I mean, the there's no question about the Roman Catholic Church that the, so much of it is, is pederasty. It is ma uh, males taking advantage of small boys, younger boys, teenage boys. Um, so they have the opportunity, they have the power. The other side of this is it is incomprehensible, is the power that comes to a minister because the minister is sacred hmm. and devoted and is, is received and perceived and uh, stands in the place of God in these people's lives. Yeah. And therefore, it's harder to resist. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked to so many women who have been abused by pastors, and one of their common statements is, I didn't know what to do because this was someone I totally trusted with my soul, yeah. you know? So it's sick and it's sad and we need all to be involved in resisting it as strongly as we possibly can. Absolutely. It's not just about accountability. You know, you can, you can put up all kinds of lines of accountability. People who want to abuse will find a way to do it. We need to find greater uh, discernment in hiring people uh, when we call a pastor that we, we base that call on the basis of character right. rather than, let's say, skill. That's not a B, yeah. all right? Baptist preaching skills, okay? Yeah. 
So we don't we 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 don't want to look at it. We don't want to just measure things by how gifted they are. We want to measure what kind of character we have. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I think that's so that's so well put. It's so important. Uh, I, I've experienced um, toxic cultures before. I, I worked in a large church for a while where the prevailing mantra among the staff was protect the pastor. So when an accusation of abuse came in, instead of trying to listen to the victim, um, we immediately went to, no, no, protect the pastor. Or if something else was going on outside, maybe media was reporting on something, it was yeah. protect the pastor. And so my question for you, Scott, is why do leaders in these organizations, maybe even the ones that don't abuse, don't actually do the abuse, why do they so often refuse to believe survivors and even go deeper than that and actually cover for abusers? Okay, I, I would put it this way, because they're in a position of power to deny and make an impact with that. But, but let me say this. The other day I was talking to a person who was involved in a megachurch. And he asked, um, he asked a, a series of, of the leading pastors, um, described a situation of a woman alleging misbehavior against a pastor. Now, this is an alarming, this is an alarming story. And this, this pastor, this younger pastor says to me, they, every one of the leading pastors said it, the, those were false accusations. Then this younger pastor asked a group of lay people and uh, staff members the same question. Every one of them sided with the victims. Yeah. Okay, now think about this. Yeah. Leading, leading pastors have power. Yeah. And they have a lot to lose Absolutely. if these sorts of allegations are true. So they have instincts of denial. And then they can use their power to gaslight the critics, the people making the victims. They can silence them. They can suppress them. They can buy them off. And so there's a culture that has developed sickeningly, sickeningly of denial uh, rather than living in the truth. So uh, it's it's very sad. This is This is something that also has to change. If we have Toe of character, we have people who will live in the truth. If we had toxic culture, we have people who will spin false narratives. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, though, right, the, the majority of folks probably watching this right now with me and you, um, they're probably not in vocational or even volunteer church leadership. They may not find themselves like on a, on a leadership team or an elder board um, or as a pastor in a church or anything like that. Um, and so they may not be able to notice, right, the toxicity in church leadership if they aren't in those actual leadership circles. Uh, they may just come in and uh, they go to church, they listen to the worship and the sermon. They may be even in a small group, which is great, um, but they don't have the, they're not like in the room where it happens, to quote Hamilton. <laughs> they don't actually uh, get to see all of it really up close um, and personal. And so, you, you wrote an entire book about this, and you also have a tremendous amount of experience in it. What are the warning signs that people should be looking for to identify toxic church cultures? Yeah, uh, this is a good one. Uh, I was just recently asked, you know, when did you first see toxic stuff at Willow Creek? I said when I read the Chicago Tribune article 
unveiling it all. Never saw it before. I've been there 10 years. My son-in-law and my, my daughter had been at Willow Creek for 20 wow. years and they hadn't seen it. So, all right. So let's just say this, that what you see on the platform on Sunday morning is a carefully curated persona. Even those who like to say they're being authentic are being authentic for the sake of curating their persona. All right. So let's, let's just say that when we perform sermons, I do this, you know, when we teach, we are curating an image of ourselves. Um, it's not always, it never totally matches reality. Okay. Let's start with that. So people need to realize that the person that they're watching on Sunday is a sinner and, um, no different from them in that sense, okay? Now, they have greater expectations for that person, and so do I, and so does Jesus. But, you know, first of all, let's say that. The second thing is, um, I, I think if they're just going to attend on Sundays and watch the service, listen to the music, and then go home, they're never going to have true perceptions mm -hmm. of what's going on behind closed doors. It is people in the inner circle and in the second circle, and in the third circle, who are the ones who alone have the opportunity to see and to call things out and to try to make things right. And brother, this is really hard work because if you call out a powerful person, they're going to knock you out. That's what they do. They eliminate you from being able to say what you saw. So we must, we must be vigilant in forming character and so that we recognize toxicity. And we must be vigilant in hiring, calling into leadership and into all the voluntary positions in our churches, all these places where people see the image of the church. We need to focus on character and never to forget that the primary form of education is emulation, not information. Oh, that's good. Oh, man. Y'all write that down if you didn't catch that. The primary form of education is emulation, education not information. Is, yeah. Is oh, emulation. That's good. You've said that a few times. Not information. Right? You can tell I've said that before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just once or twice. Times. <laughs> Uh, Y'all write that down if you didn't catch it. The primary form of education is emulation, not information. Ooh, that's so good. Um, now, one thing you talk about throughout the book, and actually in much of your speaking, is this idea that the American church really needs to reconsider what is most important. You've talked about that already a little bit today. But in the final chapter of Tove, you, you say this, church as people not an organization, business, or enterprise, is the means by which other people are enfolded into God's family. Our purpose is redemptive and restorative, not for profit, position, or power. Now, our, our church is actually called Restore, and so we I, I know we all really resonate with this quote, this idea of this call to restoration and redemption is super important to us. And so I want to ask for, for us, those of us that are burdened by this and other churches that we might influence, how do we move away from being all about power and profit and position and move toward redemption and restoration, this true call that God has for Tove churches? Well, um, I think that we, we establish cultures, uh, leaders establish cultures, um, 
congregations then nurture that culture and it it begins with cycle and then it becomes an agent so that the culture of the church becomes sort of a living reality in which we swim like the color of water um i think we have to number one we have to know what tove is mm, yeah. instead of toxicity uh, so what would i call it uh, position, power, whatever, profit, whatever. Um, we we need to realize that's not what we're striving for. We're striving for Tov and Christ likeness. So we need to have uh, the idea of what we're doing. The second is we need to have role models. You know, I just said education is primarily emulation, not information. We learn from watching other people who do yeah. it well. We need to have on our platforms, we need to have as role models, we need to have as stories, people whose character is Tove. And then we can say, I want to be like that person. Uh, and that's why uh, when Laura and I were writing this book, Laura wanted to find good examples of churches. And I said, no. She said, why? I said, because we're going to find out in 10 years that they were toxic too. I said, we got to use somebody who's dead. And so we we landed. Uh, I landed one day. I said, well, we're going to tell stories about Mr. Rogers as much as we can. And we had more in the book. But our editor said we had too many, too many. So we took them out. But there's just some. I think that um, the the key thing about Mr. Rogers is people who worked with Mr. Rogers became Tover because they worked with Mr. Yeah. Rogers. When they were around him, they acclimated to his toveness we need more role models so the idea the examples and third practice that is affirmed when people do tove things when people have tove character we need to affirm that yeah. now at the same time we need to denounce toxicity um, so tove people are the ones who have the instincts to see toxicity when it's present Toxic people don't see toxicity. Tove people see toxicity because it's unlike they're all of a sudden sucking in bad air and they don't like what they're what they're feeling. So we need I think we need I, I really believe we need more examples. We need to tell stories of Tove people, not in, in a way that turns ordinary people into giants. Uh, but just now notice this person. She's teaching Sunday school class here. She's been doing this for 30 years. She loves her children and her children all love her because she's loved them the whole time. Those are the people we tell stories about. Oh, that's good. Man, I couldn't agree more. And the truth is that leaders are going to be emulated or whether they're being tove or not, right? I mean, people are going that's to right. follow what they see. Uh, now, earlier you mentioned calling out toxicity, the importance of, of seeing something that's not Tove and, and naming it as such, toxic behaviors, toxic cultures. How would you respond to those who say that uh, calling out toxicity is really not helpful? It's actually disunifying. Well, everybody with a blog has become a prophet today and everybody with a Facebook page and everybody with a Twitter account and everybody, you know, everybody's doing this and it's, it's uh, it's toxic in itself. Um, I think people need to take a really good look at themselves and how often they're calling out other people. If that's what they get thrills about, uh, they're not true prophets. They're toxic themselves. Uh, 
Um, I think by and large, though, uh, our words, you know, what, what was uh, from Hamilton, listen more, speak less or something like that. I think we need to listen more and call out people less so that when we do call people out, people will hear us. If you're always calling people out, oh, that's good. Yeah. you know, you're like the little boy who cried wolf. Um, I, I, I like to, I like to think that Willow Creek was stunned when I wrote my first blog post critical of them because I had been so uniformly positive about them before. If I had always been griping and complaining about Willow Creek, then they would just have ignored me. And I think that that's what we need to strive for so that we use our, let's say our prophetic edge as rarely as possible. Yeah. Oh, I probably needed to hear that. <laughs> I appreciate you. I appreciate you saying that. You know, I think candidly though, it's like the, the thing that I get overwhelmed by just personally is there seems to be such toxicity everywhere. Like it's just so much of it out there. And, um, but I need to realize it's not my job, right. To police or call out everything. Um, yeah, we've yeah. got other people that are doing those things and I need to, to do what God has called me to do in those areas where he's given me, um, the ability to do so. Yeah. I appreciate you saying yeah. that, Scott. I, it's convicting well, for me personally. Yeah. Um, no, you know, using I our know. prophetic edge sparingly actually makes it more effective. That's a, that's a great word. Okay. At the end of the book. Um, you list these things you call seven key elements of a Tove culture, empathy and compassion, grace and graciousness, putting people first, truth telling, justice, service, and Christ likeness. Yeah, yeah. Where do you see those? Like, what do we need the most work on in the church today? Where do you feel like we have the most improvement to do? Um, that is a good question. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at my. I'm looking at the circle of Tove right now. Um, I, I think I would say first that different people have different uh, things they need to work on first. Some churches are very empathetic and gracious, but uh, they, need, they need some backbone, some strength, some holiness, as it were. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I want to say um, that if we put people first, maybe this would be the, the area. As, as our churches grow, people become less and less known. They can come to church. If yours is a church where people can come and not be known and not be seen and leave and feel quite good about that, you don't have a church. You know, I was talking with a pastor today who said, uh, people are getting up now on Sunday mornings and choosing which church to go to. And um, he said, what do you think? I said, well, that's not church because they're not known. So I, I think that um, we've created this entertainment culture where people can come to church and watch and listen to the music and get a blessing and go home and just be untouched, un, unfelt, uncommunicated with. And this is just not church. So I, I think that because we've done that, we need to revive the practice 
of putting people first. And that means first, learning people's names. It means second, learning people's stories. It means third, learning people's families. And we need, we need to practice this. How many people can come to church and be known? Uh, the people who are not knowable and not known are not participating in church and we're not doing what our calling is in calling them into this family of known people. Oh, gosh, that's so beautiful, man. Okay, I, I want to wrap up with uh, this quote. I think it's my very favorite from the book. It says, church is about relationships and community, which take time to build. Church is about knowing and being known, loving and being loved, serving and being served. That's what you're talking about, right? That's church. Yes. Yeah, that's church. That's, you know, that's the way I feel at my church. I, I was with a pastor the other day. He said, how, how can I help you? I thought, oh, I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. You know, people don't ask me that very often. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll mow my own grass. Thank you very much. But I would like you to trap some rabbits <laughs> who are getting into my garden. Um, but no, I, I think that's, that's it. That's what church is. And it takes time. Uh, you can't. This is one of uh, a common experience for me. People come to seminary, the, the people who move to seminary now, which isn't as common as it used to be. Um, they come and they come to me in the first term and say, we can't find a church. And, and I have a standard answer to this. I say, how long did it take you to get to uh, to where you were in your church. How long did you attend? You know, someone said 17 years. I said, how long was it before you were, felt like you were really a part of it? And they said, oh, probably three or four years. I said, that's how long it's going to take to find a church. It takes that long to be integrated. Now, extroverts feel like they're, they're a part of the church the first week. Introverts, it takes 10 years, okay, before they can trust seven people, right? But um, it takes a long time to turn a group of people into friends and family and brothers and sisters in Christ. So you're in it for the long haul. And it's the long haul when you realize that these are not all people you like. But being with people you don't yeah. like is the very nature of what it means to be in a church. Uh -huh. Yeah. What a perfect way to end this, Scott. It has been such, such a pleasure to talk with you and learn from you today, man. It's been awesome. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's nice to have books behind you so that I can, <laughs> I feel like I'm in a, in a, you know, in a seminary oh, man, well, or um, something like that. I like it. So thank Yeah. I feel the same way about yours. Yeah. I yeah. feel smarter just looking at your books. Would you mind praying for us as there we close this up? That'd be awesome. Father, today uh, we give you thanks because you are Tove. We know that you are Tove yourself, that everything you do is Tove, that what you want for us is Tove. And so we ask that you would grant us the gift of Tove, the spirit of Tove, the examples of Tove, and in Christ uh, alone in his Toveness, that we would find the kind of life you want for us. And I pray for all the people in this church, that you would fill them with the spirit of Tove and empower them to be witnesses to Jesus in their world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you again, Scott.
Thank you. All right, man. Bye-bye.